This is the podcast of the Nova Center on Business, Human Rights and the Environment. Welcome. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the podcast of the Nova Center on Business, Human Rights and the Environment. My name is Laura Inigo Alvarez. I'm a researcher and lecturer in international law at Nova School of Law in Lisbon. And today we will discuss uh, business, human rights and migrant workers from the perspective of women's rights. In particular, the case of seasonal workers uh, working in the strawberry in the south of Spain, in Huelva. So for that, we have two speakers today, Ainsane Márquez and Carolina Jiménez Sánchez. So welcome to the podcast and uh, thank you for accepting our invitation. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here talking to you both. Yes. Hello, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm honored to be here. Thank you, both of you. And before starting uh, with our topic, I would like to introduce our guest speakers uh, today. Uh, first, we have Ainsane Market, who is a senior attorney at Women's Link Worldwide, an international nonprofit organization that uses the power of the law to promote social change that advances the rights of women and girls, especially those facing multiple forms of discrimination. And she is also a PhD candidate at the University Carlos III of Madrid, where she focuses on corporate responsibility for human rights violations from a gender perspective. And we also have Carolina Jimenez Sanchez, Uh, who is a lecturer in international law and international relations at the University of Malaga in Spain. And her research focuses on gender and uh, international law, peace and security and human rights law. Her book on women in armed conflict is a complete study uh, about gender-based violence and discrimination. And she's also a member of the Women's League for Peace and Freedom, where she develops uh, international activism on gender, uh, human rights, and peace at the international level. So again, welcome. And um, first of all, and to provide some context to our uh, audience, could you please explain us what is the situation of seasonal workers in the south of Spain and why this case deserves uh, further investigation? Right. Um, so, yeah, I think it's important to, to focus on the context a little bit before starting, because um, most of the production of vegetables and fruits in Spain is growth in the south of the country, in regions like Andalucía or Valencia or Murcia. And in those regions, there are huge areas of greenhouses for intensive agriculture. And of course, many of these products are destined to the national markets, but also to other countries. And according to FedEx, for instance, in 2020, Spain exported 5.6 million tons of vegetables and fruits. So taking that into, into account uh, regarding the berries industry in Huelva, which is also in Andalucía, in the south of Spain, this region is one of the main exporters of strawberries and other berries globally. In 2010, again, according to FedEx, Spain exported 99 million strawberries only to Germany and more 
than uh, 280,000 tons of strawberries globally. So of course, this very intensive production model requires lots of seasonal workers. And in Huelva in particular, many of them are undocumented migrants who live in informal settlements around the farmers lands in different towns of Huelva, and many other are Moroccan women who come to Spain annually to pick berries and strawberries under a bilateral agreement signed between Morocco and Spain in 2001. And for instance, before the pandemic in 2019, uh, there were almost 20,000 women, Moroccan women working in Spain in Huelva during the harvest season. So that would be the context, broadly speaking. And in response to why it needs to be further investigated, the truth is that while the agreement between Morocco and Spain uh, does not specify a selection criteria uh, based on gender, in practice, women are specifically sought for a number of reasons, not least because they are stereotypically thought to be more docile, more careful, and more hardworking than men. And another unofficial selection criteria would be that the workers are the head of their households and they have young children. Many of these women recruited are divorced or widowed, and as their families remain in Morocco during the picking season, this measure effectively serves as a guarantee that they will return to the home country at the end of their contracts. So again, the fact that these women are in a position of vulnerability and in critical economic need, it's exploited by some of these harvesting companies of the industry of the strawberries in Huelva to impose abusive labor conditions. And because they are uh, women, uh, the whole situation puts them at, at risk of suffering gender-based violence, especially sexual violence. They can be asked for sexual favors by their managers or sexual harassment or sexual attacks, which they cannot denounce if they want to keep their jobs. Um, it is very important to continually investigate about this topic because it's very challenging for them to denounce before the authorities because their works uh, and residency permits are linked to a contract with a specific company. So it's very difficult to change companies. And also there is a total dependence on the company for continued employment for future campaigns in that there is an nominative system in place. So once you come one year to a campaign, if you want to come in the following years, that first company has to ask for you for the next campaigns. And all these limitations together with their lack of knowledge of the local language and of information of their rights and the mechanisms they have to denounce, it makes it almost impossible for those who suffer abuse during their employment to take steps to report it. Thank you for that, Ainsani. And going a bit farther, uh, there was a report written about this particular case and maybe Carolina can explain a bit more like what type of labor rights and human rights abuses were documented in the case of strawberry pickers and how women have been particularly uh, affected. Yes, in terms of rights, I would say there are three different kinds of rights that are being violated. Firstly, labor rights, such as uh, housing, those related to the salary, the extra hours, or the working hours. And I, I would say every labor rights is being violated in this context. Also, we have, uh, as Ensane uh, explained, the gender discrimination. And this is uh, something very worrying because we have uh, cases of sexual harassment and sexual abuse, but also gender discrimination based on stereotypes. And also, I would say a, a third kind of 
discrimination is the origin discrimination based on the high illiteracy rate that these women have. They came from rural uh, areas of Morocco in, in the majority. And this is one of the most complex uh, elements of the issue. We found in, in our investigation that there is a big distortion between the framework, the Spanish framework governing this kind of recruitment. They are uh, temporary workers. And the reality, they found one when they uh, arrived to, to Spain. And this is, of course, based on the literacy rate and the, and the, the condition of rural women. I think uh, at the end, states and also companies and are taking advantage of this situation of the illiteracy of these women. And this is uh, like the, the origin of, of the problem. And then, then I was wondering that considering this situation of human rights abuses, these women have been suffering, and maybe this question for Aitzane, are there any cases that have been brought to justice in Spain? And if so, uh, what are the main legal and practical obstacles that you uh, found in this case? Well, yeah, um, given the numerous rights abuses that um, female migrant workers face during their time in Spain, as Carolina has explained, this is not a new uh, theme. Uh, there has been a lot of investigation on the topic and a lot of reports, the most recent one, the one that we've uh, published. And it may seem surprising that this matter has not come to the attention of the courts before. However, there is a number of intersecting factors that are at play in this case, which significantly limit the ability of these migrant workers to speak about the abuse that they are suffering and to report it. Firstly, as I said before, the state and the companies employing the workers formulate this uh, selection criteria based on gender. And we understand that this uh, selection criteria is uh, a method of controlling workers. They play on the role of women as mothers and caregivers, knowing that the women rely on this employment to support their families in Morocco. So some companies take advantage of their position of vulnerability to impose very abusive conditions, and they do it with impunity, knowing that it's unlikely that the women will risk losing their income by challenging them. So not only this, but if the workers do speak about the abusive conditions in which they are forced to live and work, they are also facing, as I said before, the precious chance of re-employment in future seasons. Again, in the case that any of these women seek to report the abuse, uh, risking unemployment is not the only issue that they face because as women always face significant practical barriers to accessing justice. Um, in this case, they are not only physically isolated in that they are accommodated on the farmlands, far away from towns, but they are also socially isolated because they cannot speak the local language and have limited access uh, to local people. And also, uh, as Carolina pointed out, there is a lack of information provided to these women about what are their rights and what are their, the mechanisms in place for them to denounce any abuse. So these practicalities in themselves uh, significantly limit their access to any available support or reporting mechanisms. It is true that Despite of the risks involved in reporting the situation, in 2018, several brave women came forward to break the silence about the systematic abuse women seasonal workers uh, 
in Huelva we're facing, including the four women who Women's Link is currently representing. And these four Moroccan women who were hired to work as seasonal uh, pickers in 2018 filed complaints before the criminal courts, the employment courts, and the labor inspector relating to sexual harassment and sexual abuse situation and the working conditions they were forced to endure. So for instance, regarding the legal challenges, um, we faced some legal challenges uh, within the criminal proceedings because under the Spanish criminal court, labor exploitation is classed as a crime against the rights of workers and corporate or state responsibility cannot be assigned to this category. So instead, the only avenue remaining through the criminal law would be to seek to bring charges against an individual for labor exploitation. And another challenge or a consequence of reporting these cases to the court is that um, since the 2018 campaign, our representatives have not been called back to work, probably because they dare to report the rights violations that they were suffering. We understand that this sends a very serious message to other workers, like if you report, you may run out of work in the future. But indeed, the fact that there aren't more cases before the court being reported or complaints, uh, we do not think that it's an indicator of um, a change in the industry or the inexistence of these systematic abuses that have been um, reported every year. But there are um, a lot of difficulties for women in denouncing and subsequently obtaining justice, and they do not want uh, to report or they do not dare to do it. It is true that progressively there are more women that denounce their employees with the support of local organizations such as Jornaleras en Lucha or Mujeres 24 Horas or Pastora Filigrana. And these organizations are taking the lead in informing the women about their rights and on the ways to denounce, which should also be something that the state and the companies should be doing. Thank you for that, Ainsani. I think it's always... The difficult part is the access to justice and to reparation in this kind of uh, situations. And the other thing for me is that uh, we have been talking about the situation of Spain, but uh, I was wondering uh, which common features um, do you see between the Spanish case and similar situations in other countries in the south of, of Europe, for instance, uh, in Portugal or in Italy and in Greece, where maybe uh, we can see similar uh, cases there. Yes, I think this is an issue that needs further investigation because there are many places inside of Spain. It's not only Huelva, but also Almeria or Murcia and also in Europe and Mediterranean countries, especially Italy, I think they have a, a very similar situation. I, ha I have read some pieces about it. But uh, the thing is, I think is this is a worldwide phenomenon and it's in relation with the situation of agriculture in general. And the thing is, we have to be aware of the feminization of poverty in this kind of uh, job. Of course, uh, also thinking about rural economies women also make a substantial contribution to food security and nutrition. And the thing is they are the majority of people working in agriculture. They are the majority of labor force. 
but on the contrary, men are the, the majority of owners of land. So I think it's something we have to, to see in a global perspective, not only European or Mediterranean perspective. Women are continue to be primarily responsible for domestic uh, and care work and the household and community level, but they also have this, this kind of complex and hard work in, in agriculture that they have something in common in every context, the violation of fundamental rights, the violation of labor rights, and of course, this kind of gender discrimination. So I think this is something we, we have to take with a global perspective. Yeah, in fact, and also related to this question that we are seeing, this is a situation that is common to, to several countries or worldwide in the, se in the agriculture sector. And I would like to ask you both of you, which recommendations uh, would you give to states and companies to better protect the human rights of migrant workers, and in particular of women and migrant workers? I don't know, maybe Ainsane wants to start? Sure. Um, I think that as Carolina was pointing out, um, these kind of agreements, bilateral agreements, or these kind of um, agricultural model, uh, models are prevalent throughout the world. And with the continuous globalization of the workforce, it is undoubtable that short schemes will develop further. But regardless on how states or companies um, choose to regulate the migration of seasonal workers, such schemes cannot be allowed to operate at the expense of workers' basic human rights. So in the case of these uh, strawberry pickers, I think that there are uh, several issues that can be reviewed or changed. For instance, um, the Spanish authorities should review the migration scheme and consider this um, discriminatory recruiting system that it's in place, and also uh, should focus on facilitating information on for the women on, on their rights in the country of origin and once they are here in Spain, including also the possibility for uh, seasonal workers to obtain permanent residency permits after coming for several years and even bringing families with them in the case of women, because as I said at the beginning, uh, many of them have young children. And uh, of course, there's a need to reform uh, the applicable laws in order to strengthen the protection, but in order to, to integrate a gender perspective in all these uh, laws. And for instance, we have seen that it's, there's also an important need to increase and strengthen labor inspections in the, in the area and ensure that labor inspectors have received training on and are sensitive to the gender forms of violence suffered by female seasonal workers. And in general, um, Spain should adopt a legal framework requiring companies to exercise human rights due diligence in order to identify, prevent, and mitigate the risks of rights violation and ensure that seasonal migrant workers have access to appeal and redress mechanisms. But indeed, this is not only a responsibility of the states. I think that also companies should implement due diligence protocols with a gender perspective and also ensure that in the event of allegations of abuse, um, they have access to, to the redress mechanisms. And again, I think a key component of all this is um, to provide women with information about their rights and uh, which um, 
mechanisms they have to denounce and these should be independent mechanisms. And also, as I was saying at the beginning, a lot of these fruits and vegetables are being exported. So distributors and mice retailers all over the world will should be taking all necessary measures to ensure that their suppliers respect the human rights of workers and include policies with a gender perspective. I think that if all these measures were successfully implemented in the case of Huelva, I think we would look at significant steps towards combating the situation of structural discrimination that Carolina was talking about and ensuring that women migrant workers are able to perform their work in conditions of equality and dignity. Yes, I agree with Ansane. And just to complement the answer, I would say that state, in this case, Spain, is responsible to offer these uh, workers uh, a peace environment and um, something like a cultural integration into the country. They have to provide some learning of the language and some courses and, and something because they have nothing from, from the state in this kind of, of perspective. And also at the international level, of course, I, I think that Spain and every European country have to sign and ratify the International Convention of Migrant Workers and Their Families. And of course, it's like something uh, basic, but they have to fulfill, they have to comply with their obligations in human rights law. I think if they comply with these obligations, we cannot ask anymore. Just comply with the, the text, the convention you have already ratified. And this would be just to complement the, the response of Ansani. Yeah, I think sometimes the issue is the lack of implementations of uh, international norms and agreements that are already signed by the different uh, states. And Aitzani also mentioned um, the due diligence legislation. And here in NOVA, we are actually following uh, all the new developments about due diligence, human rights due diligence. And so I was wondering for Aitzani in this case, maybe, uh, do you think the, the upcoming EU directive on mandatory human rights due diligence could serve to cover some of the protection gaps in relation to uh, corporate responsibility and migrant workers? Sure, totally. I think, I mean, picking up where Galonina left, um, Spain, uh, in fact, uh, when the UN Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights examined Spain in, in its uh, sixth period report in 2018, it developed some recommendations on how to implement the National Plan on Business and Human Rights. And they told Spain that there was a need to establish effective mechanisms to ensure that companies perform human rights due diligence. And there was also a recommendation on the need to strengthen the applicable legal framework by defining the legal responsibility of companies with regards to human rights violations. And I think an important point here made by the UN uh, committee was that they stated that uh, the companies can be directly committing these abuses or uh, committing them by the result of the activities or the, of their subsidiaries abroad. And also uh, there was a recommendation of reinforcing the existing mechanisms for investigating complaints filed against corporations. 
So I think that Spain indeed has already in place some due diligence standards, for instance, within the criminal code applicable to corporate criminal responsibility. But of course, a joint European approach in this matter will surely lead to countries like Spain to develop a specific and broad mandatory human rights due diligence in the same way that other member states of the European Union have already done, such as France that others are considering to do. So I think that it will surely lead to more legal certainty uh, within the, the European Union. And again, any law of this kind must take into account the differentiated and disproportionate impact of business activities of, on women and girls. And the directive states that human rights due diligence should cover both actual and potential impacts on women's rights. But the truth is that the same should apply to migrant workers. And at this moment, the directive is not acknowledging their realities. Yeah, I totally agree with Insane there. And maybe just a final um, question. Um, considering that you both uh, contribute and participate in different um, NGOs and associations working in human rights, and how do you see the role of civil society organizations in creating more awareness in the field of business and human rights in, in this case. So I don't know if maybe Carolina wants to start. Yes. Well, I think this is something so important because it's like make visible the invisible or make visible the injustice. Um, I think it's key to society to have this kind of organizations to, to make visible the injustice. Also, if we think in how civil society have uh, contributed, for example, to the development of human rights law is crucial. So we have human rights law because of uh, civil society, not because of the work of states. Um, then I think we have to, to put um, the, the force in the influence, the power to press states uh, to comply with international rules and international uh, norms. The power to the, of civil society, I think, is bigger than with maybe some people thought. And of course, people also in these cases is uh, worry about consuming, uh, for example, the fruit no? or the strawberries in these cases. But I think this is not uh, the only thing. They have to press. They have to be aware. They have to to feel that they can do something else and they, they can uh, demand or press the state to comply with international rules. And this is basically to say we disagree with these politics or we disagree with the kind of managing the issue that my state is having, uh, particularly in, in strawberry cases. But the thing is, we have to be aware that civil society has a power, but this power has to be uh, put into the, the issue of press, press states um, and press international community, making visible and making awareness of the social injustice. Thank you, both of you. And uh, maybe, I don't know if you want to refer to some of the reports that have been recently published, uh, Carolina or Aitzane, just Can to I some... something to what Carolina said? Yeah. Yes, of course. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, because I think um, 
I, I fully agree with Carolina in the sense that um, the NGOs and the associations of human rights have a power. And, and also I think that even the academia in this case has been creating a lot of awareness in the field of uh, business and human rights. And we have also seen how strategy litigation against corporation uh, has gradually increased the visibility on this process and has allowed in some cases access to justice for victims. Um, and with the cases that we are litigating in Women's Link in Huelva, we want to try and achieve this structural change that Carolina was speaking about so that the companies, the Spanish state and um, Moroccan states are obliged to focus on the rights of, of the workers, not solely on maximizing financial gain. And uh, with these cases, we are always trying to uh, use them as an advocacy platform for diverse movements and organizations to come together. And in this case, to demand accountability for of corporations from, from a gender perspective. So I think it's very important for us to be connected and to work towards the same goal and uh, all everyone included, no? as Carolina said, like the academia, the NGOs, the Association of Human Rights, um, but also the, the 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 people in general. Yeah, in fact, I think this is this relationship and this connection between academia, and civil society, and further stakeholders is really key, especially in the field of um, business and human rights. And actually, the idea with the podcast for us is also to bring more awareness of the different situations um, in this field. Uh, I'm not sure if you want to refer to the different reports that have been published recently, so the audience can have uh, some information on where to find these reports. Uh, Carolina? Yes, thank you, Laura. In, in the website of WILF, Women International League of Peace and Freedom, you can find the report. Not, now it's only in Spanish, but in the future we will have it in English also. And it's about human rights of uh, seasonal migrant women in, in Andalusia. And as you said, it, you can find the, the PDF in, in the website. Thank you, Insane. Uh, I think there was a previous report by Women's Link. Yeah, I mean, what we have on our website too, it's a report that we did in 2019. Uh, we have um, a summary of this report in English in our website. And we did this report because after all the media um, information that appeared in 2018, and after we took this case I was talking about, we we did this uh, field uh, investigator investigation to see if things had changed because in appearance uh, some um, policies had changed. But in fact, uh, we uh, saw that the uh, same systematic abuses were still in place. And I think that Will's report confirms that. Um, and you, could, you can also um, see in our website some international actions that we have developed with regards to this cases before the uh, special rapporteurs of the uh, United Nations because um, the special rapporteur of extreme poverty, the, um, the previous one, Philip Alstom, came to Spain and went to Huelva and he made uh, some very hard statements about the situation of seasonal workers in Huelva and after that uh, we sent this um, urgent appeal to the to the special rapporteurs and it has been uh, very successful because they uh, made some questions to the state uh, of Spain and also Morocco but also to some of the companies that are involved in the industry so I think that there's 
other ways of um, putting pressure on this um, reality. And I think there's also um, some international level mechanisms that can and are being very successful in um, bringing attention to, to these uh, issues. Thank you, Einstani and Carolina. I think we had a good overview about the situations and bringing more awareness about the interrelationship between business human rights, migrant workers, and women's rights uh, in this case. Uh, so thank you both of you for your wonderful contributions. And also thank you to the audience. Um, please stay tuned for the next episode uh, on the Nova Center on Business Human Rights and the, and the Environment. Thank you and goodbye.